Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Christ, you know it ain't easy. The Ballad of John and Yoko is a unique song in the Beatles canon. It was their last number one. And when we look at the Beatles' last active year of service in 1969, does it give us any clues as to how they could have functioned in the 70s? Well, Get Back and Abbey Road are two perspectives. The Ballad of John and Yoko, it kind of gives us a, a third perspective, doesn't it, Stephen? Yes, I mean, I suppose it's almost a John solo project, and you you can see a situation uh, in the seventies where they were coming together. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> you know, every year, every other year, doing a group album, doing solo projects, and this is this is a period where uh, you know each of the four are doing solo projects. Um, you, whether that's recording other Apple artists uh, or films or uh, you know, uh, music projects, there's Apple label projects, but this, I suppose, is the first time, maybe the only occasion on which a John in inverted commas solo project is actually encroaching onto the Beatles turf. Yeah. And it's their last standalone single as well, which is interesting for a band who had done so many standalone singles, which you sometimes don't totally connect with their surrounding albums. You know, you don't often think of we can work it out should be on rubber soul, but even though they're they're of the same uh, era, so uh, it, it's curious that even at that late stage in their career, they thought, no, we can still knock out a standalone single. Well, they knocked out the standalone single while their previous standalone single was still <laughs> still in the chart. So it's 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 the whole concept and a uh, sort of uh, development and execution of this project is very strange. It is. And it's, uh, as I said, it's kind of totally uh, unique. Um, so the Ballad of John Yoko, you know, it's obviously totally autobiographical. There's nowhere to hide within the song. It, it is about the thing it is about. And, you know, it kind of arrives at a peak John and Yoko period where they're the John and Yokiest that they can possibly be. This, yes, this really, this really launches them. This, this period uh, uh, really launches them as that John and Yoko, that single entity. Uh, they're on the front page of uh, you know every newspaper, not just in the UK, but sort of all around the world. And th- th- this song is effectively a diary which explains exactly how they went from being. John Lennon and Yoko Ono to being John and Yoko. Yeah. Um, it, it is Lennon in 1980 said, this is just a piece of journalism. And he, he described it back in 1969 as Johnny B paperback writer. <laughs> um, you know, so it's similar, I suppose, to uh, New York City, the song on Sometime in New York City, which is just a piece of reportage about what they were doing. Um, well, it's it's a point we'll probably come back to is that, you know, it kind of sets up a, a new style of, of Lennon uh, writing and Lennon music uh, because it is totally autobiographical and it's chronological as well. And that's kind of what we're going to pull the thread on today is to actually look at this song and say this is a chronological coverage of only about two to three weeks in their lives. May we all be so busy, but it does work in terms of, you know, they've often said that um, 
know, the Bedins were an advertising campaign for peace. And this song is part of the advertising campaign for John and Yoko. It is. I think, uh, I, I, you know, we can't forget that. We, al- Although it's a peace campaign, this is very much about, uh, you know, I suppose in modern terms, it would be the the, the media launch. It's a brand launch uh, yeah. for, for John and Yoko. And he's enlisting the most famous rock group in the world to, to, to do the heavy lifting. Yeah. Uh, or is he? Is it all of the group? We'll come to that later on. Um, so, yeah, the Battle of John Yoko is, is, if you take it as a constituent parts, it's kind of a dull song telling the story. But the opening line, Standing in the Dock at Southampton, is an event that happened on the 15th of March, 1969. Um, and it is a credit to their lives that they make it so entertaining. But to know how they get to that point on the 15th of March, 1969, we need to rewind back to the start of 69 and just briefly have a walk through all the things that happened. Because obviously January 1969 is Get Back, Let It Be. And I'm sure most people listening to this will recall that project, you know, the concert on the roof and all that kind of thing. Um, But then you get into February, which is this kind of a bit of a no man's land in Beatle terms. Yeah, it sort of tips immediately from that concert on the roof. Which is, uh, there's so much activity in January. Like it's so it, dense. Yes. Yes. And it's all about the music and for all of the sort of fractious uh, period that, 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 that is, it ends on a real high with that rooftop performance. Uh, and then 1st of February, 1969, they're literally back down to earth. They're back at Savile Row. There's a meeting uh, in which Alan Klein is giving his overview, his assessment of what their finances are like. And he's obviously painting as bleak a picture as he can. Uh, also present is John Eastman, who is soon to be Paul's uh, father-in-law. So they're straight back into chasing paper. You know, it's about money. It's about business. Yes. And and this is the time where Klein is basically trying to get his control. Yes. He's really pitching very hard at this stage to come in and take control. John Eastman and Paul uh, are on the other side. Paul is obviously wanting John Eastman to, to come in. And, and there's a split here between Eastman as the lawyer, Klein as the notionally an accountant, but coming from a financial side. Uh, and and there's a series of meetings um, in which it's a bit of a tug of war between between those two two factions. And it's, it's it, you know, books have been written about, you know, the decline of Apple and, you know, what happened at that time. But, you know, in the heat of the moment, I'm not saying I can understand why Ringo, George and John went with Alan Klein, but you actually kind of can because they would say, you know, well, he's he's our guy and, you know, he has form and he seems, you know, the, the thing about Klein is he seemed to sell himself pretty well. He wasn't shy. No, he, he sells himself well. And, you know, we see this with with John, you, you know, he, he latches on to a particular character or he latches on to a particular cause and it's a wholehearted 100 percent endorsement so very quickly he's feels he's got the measure of klein and he's the guy for 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 the beatles he's certainly um the one he wants representing him and george and ringo uh, essentially i think without any great independent investigation of klein um (laughs) they didn't do due diligence or any of that they didn't do due diligence uh you know they sort of john is the leader john thinks this guy is 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 good but there, there is a lot going on in February, which is in parallel with this. So this is, again, the fascinating thing that they can be arguing about management issues, about legal issues, about financial issues. But at the same time, um, they're working together. They're producing music. Uh, I mean, the first thing that really happens is George absents himself for a week to go and have his tonsils out. Those pesky Um, tonsils, those those pesky tonsils, tonsils, you know, that uh, kept Um, him off the stage in 64. So you think this is probably the first week he's had an opportunity to uh, possibly in five years to get get to get that done. You could have had them done in India, maybe. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Are you recommending that? Is no, that... I'm not. No, no, no. All well, right. Okay. Um, but it's like they are. There's work going on. So Paul is working with Mary Hopkin at this stage on the 13th of uh, February. There's a, a, a launch party for her album. Uh, 
postcards. So Paul's there. Linda is very much uh, uh, there. Uh, Jimi Hendrix pops up. Eric Clapton, yeah. uh, Donovan, members of Mary Hopkins' family. You think that must be kind of weird? And this is this is the top of the post office tower, which is one of my yes favorite buildings in London. I used to work around the corner, and I've never managed to get up to the uh, the the, re- the rotating restaurant at the top of Tony Benn's post office tower. It was a fascinating this- building. Does it still rotate? It No, it hasn't rotated in a while. And uh, it was due to reopen again in 2012 for the London Olympics and they, they and maybe for a spin, but it hasn't spun. But if anyone knows that building, it's a, it's a fantastic piece of pop, 60s pop art almost itself. It's, it's, it's very 60s. It's a yeah, very yeah. kind of iconic thing. Um, so Apple is still continuing. Apple is, you know, the, that side of the business. 22nd of February, they start work on I want you. So again, we talked about this before. This is a very short period between the supposedly fractious sessions. And then they're straight into the, you know, 22 days later, they're, they're making a start on a song that turns up on Abbey Road. And those sessions for I want you are, um, you yeah, know, they're a bit more uh, clearly laid out in the Abbey Road box set. You can actually hear yes. that uh, Trident Studios. So it's not Abbey Road, they're in Trident Studios. It's the, the take where, you know, they, they get a, a warning from a neighbour that they're making too much noise. Yes. Um, but it's Billy, uh, Billy Preston is there. And yeah, it's, it is the link performance between all the Get Back stuff and all the Abbey Road stuff. Um, uh, and, you know, it's it's a fantastic performance if, uh, if any of you out there haven't heard it already. Um, so that brings us through February. And, um, you know, Paul and Linda, it's worth keeping in the back of our mind that they are a uh, an item. And, you know, the hindsight with John Eastman is that we think, oh, yeah, he would have been the good, wise choice because the Eastmans go on to manage Paul's career or his affairs to this day in some yeah. respects. Um but, you know, the Eastmans are still a very new, unknown quantity to the rest of the Beatles. You know, it's not an, it's not a given that they are the guys per se. Um, no, so it, it, it's it's the flip side of that Klein coin. It's just Paul saying, well, hey, I just met somebody and her dad is a lawyer. So, <laughs> yeah, so let's choose uh, them. You know, let's choose them. It's 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 just typical. Uh, maybe it's it's just typical of the way things were being done in the sixties. You know, you flipped a coin or th- consulted the I Ching, and 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 that, that gave you your answer. Uh, that gave you your uh, that gave you your answer. But but they're they're clearly. I mean, there's a very telling uh, split between Paul and John about what they're doing on the second of March. So uh, Paul is in the studio producing uh, Mary Hopkin singing goodbye if you know that that's again yep. a demo of that appears very kind of nice little acoustic song john uh, on that same date is on stage with yoko um at uh, cambridge university uh performing what would sort of 20 minutes of howling feedback and yoko screaming and this would go on to be side two of life with the lion so you couldn't get uh, a bigger more different yes. yeah, <laughs> approaches to, to what, what they're doing musically at this time. And that's John. So that's the 2nd of March, 1969. And, and when John gives that concert performance and it's the first, uh, essentially first appearance of any solo Beatle in, in any kind of concert setting ever. Yes. Yes. I mean, they haven't, they haven't uh, appeared on stage since Candlestick Park in 66. So this is him suddenly, um, you, you know, it, it was an avant-garde music festival um and some people in those circles were a bit sniffy about john turning up but uh it's all there it's all there and there's a plaque on the wall of the building to this day to to celebrate the uh the happening Uh, and the other thing that happens right at the end of february 69 is george on his 26th birthday does those three solo sessions that eventually turn up on anthology three for old brown shoe something and all things must pass those lovely solo acoustic demos so that's all happening at that time um so we're into march 1969 and we're still slowly gravitating towards uh standing in the dock at southampton um but as you say there's still apple business going on so you know george is being interviewed about beetle rumors at the start of march yes yeah, so so we t- tend to think uh you know the letter b film is what laid bare the um sort of divisions within the band but but these these arguments and this tension they, this was well known and was being reported on at the time in the music press and george uh gives an interview to david wig um for the bbc and has to specifically address the stories and say no I, I i didn't leave no i didn't get into a fight a physical fight with with john so this this, this is all out in the press and being reported on Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, but, and again, they're, they're just downplaying this and there's, they, they, 
the, the, you we talked about this again, you know, previously. You get a sense that they sort of drift into the back end of 1969. They're they're still trying to preserve this illusion of of, of unity. Yeah. Uh, but also they know no different. So that leads to Tuesday, the 11th of March, where, you know, we have an unusual setup where Paul and George are working together on an Apple session. This is this is very interesting to me because, uh, again, because of that argument that's enshrined in the Letter B film, you tend to think the big split was between George and Paul. But this is another example of them working together, the Beatles working together, um, you know, when the tapes start rolling and the music is being played, they can they can do that. And this is a session for uh, Jackie Lomax, um, who was a Liverpool singer that they had known from the early days in Liverpool and had brought on to the Apple uh, label. So uh, you know uh, they're recording his next single, and this is a uh, uh, Paul and George collaborating to help an old friend. Yeah, and it's it seems all very organic. And I don't know, I'm sure Jackie Lomax is kind of playing that uh, Billy Preston role of, you know, keeping everyone in good behavior, you know, working towards a common goal. Don't let anyone you down. Don't don't let yourself down in front of your friends. That's yes. The, uh... But the, the, the kind of the, the thing that might, you know, ironically, that might have fired the starting gun for the Ballad of John and Yoko or for the events of the Ballad of John and Yoko, because they all, you know, the, the events that are covered in the Ballad of John and Yoko all seem, when you look at them in close up, a little bit spontaneous would be uh, the polite way to say it, or chaotic uh, would be the more reasonable way to say it. Yeah, yeah. But on the 14th of March, 1969, uh, Paul marries Linda. And this is, uh, you know, Linda is pregnant at this time, which, you know, m- m- might have been the uh, the catalyst for this to be in a f- speedy or efficient or underannounced, shall we say, wedding. But I think that's I think that's 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 what prompts it to happen at this particular time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the 14th of March, 1969. And as far as we know, John does not know that Paul is heading off to marry Linda on that day. No. No, and um, it, it seems that seems to have been quite secretive and that that was happening. It is very, very, uh, it's very curious that it, it, Paul and John end up getting married within the same period of time, that they are two close guys. And, you know, is can we say with any certainty that Paul marrying Linda was the impetus for him to marry Yoko? It seems to me to be, it, this cannot be a they coincidence. They cannot be unrelated. It cannot they, they... be unrelated. It cannot be a coincidence because, you know, you have this sense that, that you know, Paul had obviously, it, it, it's not just that they woke up on that morning and decided, hey, Linda, let's get married. You know, there was some planning in that, but it was done in a way that none of the other Beatles were involved. Um, uh, John's decision to marry or John and Yoko's decision to marry seems just completely instantaneous uh, on the day. It is literally that they woke up one day and decided to get married. Um, and it just happens to be the day that uh, his, his erstwhile best friend and songwriting buddy and chief rival is doing the same thing. Um, I mean, it, it, it may have been nothing more than the media scrum that suddenly surrounded McCartney's wedding. Yeah. You know, you, the, you'll have seen the news footage of, of you know, them emerging and, and, um, yeah, and sort of screaming girls and, you know, the last unmarried <laughs> Beatle is, uh, has, has, has got married. So yes. but it, there's, there's a lot of media attention uh, focused on this, uh, the, the Paul and Linda wedding, and that's got to have impacted them. You know, you, we cannot say short of getting Yoko uh, here to, to, to give us her account, but I'm absolutely convinced that, that it was a spontaneous reaction to uh, the Paul and Linda wedding. situation. So the Ballad of John and Yoko, the, 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 let's, let, let's have a look at it. Standing in the dock at Southampton, trying to get to Holland or France, the man in the Mac said, you've got to go back. You know, they didn't even give us a chance. So before they get to Southampton, while Paul is getting married, in another kind of curious sense of foreshadowing, where are John and Yoko? Yeah, they're barreling down the motorway. I suppose there wasn't a motorway in 1969, but they're, they're barreling. Well, there were some motorways. But barreling not sure. down <laughs> an A or a B road uh, to pull in Dorset so that John could introduce uh, Yoko to his aunt Mimi. 
and you'd like Mimi, to like to like to have been a fly on the wall. <laughs> well, Aunt Mimi, uh, yeah, the 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 pool in Dorset is obviously um, you know it's it's in southern England, so it's far away from Liverpool, and it's a coastal yep. town, and it's genteel yeah. i think isn't yes it? and very kind of full of retirees as far yeah. as i know but this is a place where uh, this is a house that john bought for mimi as kind of a, yes. a thank you gift yes uh, yes and you know we could have a an entire episode on on john and mimi but she's obviously the the figure who spent a lot of time bringing him up she um she was still alive after John had died. So there's mm-hmm. one very significant interview with Mimi from, from 1981, which actually is on YouTube and takes place in the house in Poole in Dorset that John yes. bought for her. So, you know, she's she's a very important figure. And we know that through all, all throughout the 70s, he kept in touch there, particularly when he was in New York. So he, he obviously, it obviously was important for him to introduce Yoko to Mimi. Yes, uh, it, it, it's it's a very, as you say, there's an entire episode or two or three about the relationship between uh, John and his aunt. But uh, clearly, you know, Yoko was a big part of his life. He, Mimi is the other woman in his life and, and, and he wants to introduce them. He wants them to get on. But he, he again, he must have known that they're coming from such different backgrounds that this was never going to be uh, an easy this was never going to be a meeting of minds between Mimi and Yoko, I think. And we have some part of that story. Uh, you know, I think listening to uh, how Mimi recounts the story, she might not have been the most, what's the word, um, tolerant of people? Is that... Uh, not not the most tolerant, not the most diplomatic. Um, how does she recount yes. the whole thing? Well, there is a fantastic interview in the Daily Mail. Now, obviously, I wouldn't encourage people to go and read the Daily Mail. But, but as, um, an in- as interviews go, it's very on uh, brand for the Daily it's Mail. It's very on brand for the Daily Mail. Um, uh, yes. So there's an interview that she gave to James Montgomery uh, of the Daily Mail. And uh, I'm just going to quote exactly verbatim from this. Uh, she says, He came in all bright and breezy, typical John, and she followed behind. (laughs) I took one look at her and I thought, my God, what is that? Well, I didn't like the look of her right from the start. She had long black hair all over the place and she was small. She looked just like a dwarf to me. I told John what I felt while she was outside looking across the bay. I said to him, who's the poison dwarf, John? Oh, boy. I mean, that's, I mean, certainly her opinion at that time would have been one that was echoed in an awful lot of newsprint at the time, you know, and it's 50 years plus later, it's still, you know, quite shocking to see in print, but you know, she, she was saying what a lot of people were saying. Yes. I mean, it, 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 it's probably more shocking to, to modern sensibilities, but, but it did feed into the, the, the sort of anti, you know, this anti-Japanese sentiment. Yeah. There was there was this idea that, uh, you know, Cynthia had been very badly treated. She was this attractive blonde English girl and uh, she had been divorced, you know, cast aside in favor of this Japanese woman. Yes. Um, and so, so there was this misogyny, this racism, this generational, naturally enough, you, you know, people who were, very vivid memories of the war. So all of this feeds into it. So, you know, John couldn't have chosen a more controversial partner, perhaps in England in the 1960s, if he had tried to do that. And it's up for psychologists and psychoanalysts to decide how much of that was kind of purposeful or not. But Mimi does recount uh, saying to her, you know, what do you do for a living? I'm an artist, said Yoko. And Mimi says, that's funny. I've never heard of you. Um, <laughs> and then she warns John, um, and uh, make it this what you will. Uh, she warned John of what happened to the Duke of Windsor, who'd been remarkably popular, and the, but the public had gone off him when he married Mrs. Simpson. He lost his popularity. And John, you know better than that, Mimi lectured John. Um, I'm sure John took that all on board. But, you know, he had a lifetime at that point of gently ignoring Mimi and still yes. obviously loving her and relying on her. Yes. Again, there's that, that, that sort of love hate relationship, you know, he wanted her approval, but uh, he, 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 you do get a sense that in throughout his entire life, he challenged her conventions. You know, that was, that was what he was kicking against a lot of the time. Um, so this was, while this was happening, Paul is getting married. Um, yeah. You know, that, this is happening on the same day. So again, you've got that very stark 
<laughs> contrast. And this is the point during the journey to Mimi's house, supposedly, um, John asked his chauffeur to, to go ahead to Southampton and inquire about the possibility of him marrying Yoko at sea. Yeah, so so we're not exactly sure how John heard the news. You know, I'm sure it wasn't on Twitter or whatever the 1969 equivalent was. But himself and uh, himself and Yoko aren't driving themselves. They're being driven by Les Anthony, and it's Les yes. Anthony who's like, "Let's go to Southampton." Isn't that the, the, the general that's plan? That's it. He's the sort of gopher. So so it seems to be that uh, he is sort of dispatched to find out, is this possible to get married on the romantic setting of the cross channel ferry? Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sure that would have been that would have been that would have been lovely. But we, we talked just a little bit about Les Anthony. He, he just he passed away just last year. Yeah. Um, but uh, he was a former Welsh guardsman uh, who landed the job of becoming the Beatles chauffeur and he very quickly sort of became part of their um inner trusted circle and yeah. uh, the the story seems to be that brian epstein saw him washing a car and uh went over and had a chat with him and the next thing just literally walked him across the road to john's house and said you know this guy would be would be very good um you know he's kind of tall ex-army uh, provided an element of security as well um and increasingly he became lennon's designated designated driver he once drove the rolls royce uh from london to spain uh to pick that up you know as, <laughs> as you would it's well, like the ultimate the ultimate uber <laughs> yes come and get me and but he's uh he works for lennon until he suddenly doesn't work for lennon isn't that what happens yes it's 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 whenever uh john yoko moved to new york his his employment came to an end and and, and you know they seem to have been in very good terms and he got a brief note saying uh, again i quote you've been a good lad over the years and faithful for which i thank you and then 12 months later he's anthony is on the receiving end of a writ um because he's given an interview to the news of the world um again another yes well it's already name checked it's already, we can say what we like it's it's, it's it, a deceased it's, newspaper it so we can, to we be, can say what yes. we like um but it's a bit of a scandal sheet and um mm -hmm. again uh, he says the the, the offending line that, that uh, resulted in these proceedings was it took about three weeks to start the breakup of the beatles they were the three weeks from the day when yoko bumped into john lennon until the night she climbed into his bed so again uh, you know it, it just feeds into that that story and you uh, you know what, what can you say i know he, he I was know. he was sued for his trouble so, <laughs> so lennon uh lennon does recount that um you know uh, we wanted to get married on the cross channel ferry that was the romantic part so we went to southampton and then we couldn't get on because she yoko wasn't english and she couldn't get the day visa to go across um you know so freedom of movement was an issue there and they said yes. anyway you can't get married the captain's not allowed to do it anymore so it's all a bit sort of antiquated you know um you know these kind of type of old movies the let's get married on the ship type thing you know Ooh, uh, you're kind of i'm i'm kind of picturing a uh, james robertson justice type captain from you know doctor at large or doctor at sea uh it's it's that's all a, that's, a, that's it's, a reference for the kids there it's all very kind of um late 60s stock british uh english uh you know genteel movies and yeah let's get married see but it's the, it's the very idea that in 1980 he was still saying we wanted to get married on a cross channel ferry that was the romantic part yeah i mean speaking as someone who's been on cross channel ferries yeah, they're not the most romantic of places. <laughs> do, you think if you, do you think if you had asked your good lady wife to get married on the cross channel ferry, that would have been uh, gone? That would have been well received. No, I don't think no. so. Um, so that's the first first. Next first. Finally made the plane into Paris, honeymooning down by the Seine. Peter Brown called to say, you can make it okay. You can get married in Gibraltar near Spain. Um, can, can, I, can I just say, I'm bitterly disappointed that you're not singing these. But anyway. Oh, sorry. Oh, let, me, let, me get my, uh, let me get my 12 string. Where's it gone? Um, but this is Sunday, the 16th of March, 1969. And that's the day when they finally make the plane into Paris. So John and Yoko fly to Paris on that day by it's a private plane isn't it it's they charter a private plane which which to my way of thinking call me old-fashioned but that's more romantic than a cross-channel ferry <laughs> certainly uh, you know that you know it feels like you're going places if you're hiring yeah. your own plane for your wedding and you know peter brown goes down in uh history by getting a name check in this song he sort of gets a 
you know, Neil Aspinall never got a name check in a song, but Peter Brown has probably made a living out of getting a name check in this song. Was, and he's I obviously was, the go-between that Lennon keeps ringing. Sort this out. He is. I was, I was, I was trying to think, is there anybody else that, that, that has got a full name check? You know, we like Bungalow Bill was a real character. And the only mm. other ones I could think of were uh, uh, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Heath oh, yeah. in, ta- in Taxman. But I think Peter, Peter Bryan is, 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 gets a full name check. So, yeah, he's, he's in London. He doesn't get to go on the private plane. Um, <laughs> so he's, he's tasked with this idea of, you know, get me a license. I want to get married in, in, uh, uh, in, in Paris. Uh, again, quite romantic. But yes. he has to ring up and say, look, I'm really sorry. Uh, it may have escaped your attention, but you're not French. Um, <laughs> uh, and you, uh-huh. you, you, can't, you can't just sort of rock up uh, into any country and, and decide you're going to get married. But he, he does tell them that they they can get married in Gibraltar, that that uh, it's a British uh, protectorate or British yep. colony, I suppose, at the last the last of the the European British colonies. And um, so again they, they charter another plane and uh, fly to Gibraltar. And uh, you know, this is a necessity. They're absolutely they've decided to get married. So it's a necessity that they do this and that they 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 fly to Gibraltar. But retrospectively, John perhaps making up for the lack of romance associated with the Channel Ferry, says, uh, <laughs> you know, it's the pillar of Hercules. Uh, it was beautiful. Um, it, it, there's a sense of mystery. It's like the gateway to the world. And we liked it in the symbolic sense. And and it was the rock foundation of our relationship and not just it was the only place we could find that would give us a license. Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, it, it, they're, they're kind of knocking off these places one by one. You know, he, he believes, you know, oh, I need three weeks residence in Germany, two weeks residence in France. And yeah, Peter Brown sort of comes up with this idea that uh, Gibraltar is the place to go. And uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm still always amused by the fact that it's Gibraltar near Spain, you know, near Spain, near <laughs> as Spain. opposed to attached to Spain or, you know, the other people with other political we're, we're, ideologies. We're, we're, I was going to say we're, str- we're straying into we're straying into all sorts of uh, yes. uh, I- international diplomatic um, minefields here. But they do get married on the twentieth of March, nineteen sixty nine, at the registry office uh, in Gibraltar, uh, near Spain. Have you ever been to Gibraltar, Stephen? I, I have. I have not only been to Gibraltar. I have stayed overnight in oh Gibraltar. Oh my gosh! I, I I went to Gibraltar once, but I didn't stay overnight. What's your take on? Gibraltar, if we can sidestep. Uh... I, I, I actually, I, I was staying in Spain and I uh, sort of up the coast and I got a bus down and just at the spur of the moment, uh, yeah. I decided, uh, you know, I couldn't find anybody to get married to, but I, I just <laughs> spur of the moment thought, well, never mind that. I'll go to Gibraltar anyway. And um, I thought Gibraltar was charming. Yeah, uh, the weather was very nice. It, beautiful old streets. I stayed in a very nice little hotel. I had the best uh scrambled eggs for breakfast I've ever had anywhere in the world. Uh, I went up the cable car. Um, yeah, it was great. And then I got a bus and I headed back up uh, to finish my sunbathing, lounging by the pool holiday in Spain. It's, it's, I spent a day there and I'd been advised, which in retrospect was very stupid, that you just park at the border and then walk into Gibraltar, uh, which is stupid because uh, anyone who's been there knows that, you know, it's this little kind of peninsula that sticks out and right yeah. across the border is this uh, airport. Yes, yeah, so the runway. You have the to runway walk across the airport. So if you're walking into Gibraltar, you have to like walk across the runway like a, like a zebra crossing. It's crazy. And it's like a little time capsule of 70s Britain when you get into the streets of Gibraltar itself. All yes. these shops and things that you haven't really seen in a while. But I did get to the square where Lennon got married. And that was the important part of getting to that Gibraltar. That was the, the, the important part. But, you know, for, for all the romance attached to that, they, it was 10 minutes. They were, they were there for 10 minutes and uh, the registrar Cecil Wheeler uh, he didn't get name checked in the song unfortunately but um, so he marries them and then within an hour they're back on the plane flying back to Paris so yeah and I'm assuming they're on that runway that I had to cross uh, that's how they get back to Paris maybe that was the same I'm I'm sure I'm assuming that airport was there at the time that that must be the actual runway that their (laughs) private plane is that where your private plane landed (laughs) no rental car Um, so they get married on the 20th of March 1969 and that is six days after Paul marries Linda so uh, you know I don't know how the papers were playing this contemporaneously at the time but it must have been a, a field day to have two Beatles John and Paul married within the week that's a pretty intense that, that, that's pretty intense. I would say both, both of these events completely out of the blue as far as the press and media would have been concerned. 
Yes. So they go back to Paris and there's one interesting meeting back in Paris, isn't there? Yes. So they, they're they just kind of kicking around Paris, but uh, they meet uh, Salvador Dali and his wife Gala and uh, they have lunch. So again, that's a, that's a lunch you would have wanted to be at the next <laughs> table in the restaurant. So you've got John and Yoko, Salvador Dali and his wife. And uh, history does not record if Dali brought along his pet lobster. He's yes. famous for having a pet lobster that he would he would. I- Walk for around a walk. Paris on a lead. I'm a, how, how quickly do lobsters walk? I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I, I think um, he was just doing it for show, Stephen. You think? Yes. Uh, uh, this, exhibition doesn't sound like doesn't sound like Dali to me. But Dali but, um, wanted to collaborate, or Dali was kind of coming up with ideas. Yes, yes. So, uh, and again, it, it's a, another. You think that would be a, a thing to mention in the song? It is um, funny out of all the things that don't get a mention in the song, you know, Peter Brown gets a mention and Salvador Dali doesn't. Yes. Which is uh, the charm uh, of the song, I suppose. I, I think so. But perhaps it's also that, you know, you don't want to be upstaged in your own song by Salvador Dali. That is true. You know, the, uh, mentioning Salvador Dali or any uh, that kind of waters down the this is about me. Yeah. You know, this is not about Salvador Dali. And you you would think that that would be... Um, if not a match made in heaven, that they would have things to talk about and projects that they might like to collaborate on. And uh, Robert Whitaker, the photographer. Yeah. Um, he says uh, Dali was a huge Lennon fan. And it said he kept a photograph of John Lennon hanging from a coat hanger on his wall. So you'll be wanting to do that yourself, take all your photographs down and hang them up using <laughs> coat hangers. Um, there's a very good book called One Day at a Time by Anthony Fawcett, who, who, became John and Yoko's assistant around this time. And he talks about their, uh, the possibility of a collaboration. And, and he says uh, he once had a meeting with Dali, who was very anxious to, to, to work with John, um, and that he, Dali made an object using hand, flowers, napkins, makeup, gold paint, and said that, you know, this, take this, this artwork back. To, to John, but um, Fawcett explicitly says that Lennon was not interested in, in collaborating with Dali, yeah. despite the fact that there were quite a few overtures made yeah. by Dali at this time. And Dali was 64 at this time. He had nothing left to prove. He was Salvador Dali. You know, he was, he was uh, at the legend that was Salvador Dali. But John and Yoko spend a couple of days honeymooning down by the Seine, which, you know, if you're looking at the strict chronology of the song, they're honeymooning before they actually get married. But we'll, we'll, we'll forgive them that. You're, you're being a bit pedantic there. Being a big bit, well, that's the whole point you're of every like podcast. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they have a little break there in Paris. So we shall take a little break and we'll be right back after this. End of part one. Intermission. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. End of intermission, part two. Welcome back. So the Ballad of John and Yoko then continues Drove from Paris to the Amsterdam Hilton, talking in our beds for a week. The news people said, say what you're doing in bed. I said, we're only trying to get us some peace. So this is obviously a verse that uh, even the most casual John and Yoko fan would have recognized the bed-ins that are being um, referenced to here. And they've, they've already covered, you know, car ferries, private planes. And now we're going to drive uh, from Paris to Amsterdam, which is a 300 mile, 500 kilometer journey that takes five to six hours. 
Yeah, but they're in a Rolls Royce. They're in a Rolls Royce with a record player and a television. What a way to travel. And so drove from Paris to the Amsterdam Hilton happens on Tuesday, the 25th of March. 25th, that's it. Uh, so they check into the, the Hilton and naturally enough, they get the, the best room in the house, which is the presidential suite. That was room 902, okay. um, <laughs> although it's room 702 now. Um, so I don't know how they've remodeled, but they've, they've renumbered and they're there until the 31st of March. Um, John talks about this in one of the interviews in Anthology, and he said uh, the first bed-in was held in Amsterdam on our honeymoon, and they, we, we sent out a card saying, come to John and Yoko's honeymoon, a mm. bed-in Amsterdam hotel. Uh, and this is where he makes the point that the press, th- this is not long after the Two Virgins album has come out, and I suppose you could say that, that that's the thing that John and Yoko are perhaps at this point most famous for is taking their clothes off on an album cover. Yep. So the press think, uh, you know, there's going to be some sexy goings on, some shenanigans, um, and are very disappointed that, that John's in his stripy flannel uh, pyjamas is something that his grandfather uh, <laughs> m- might, might have worn. And uh, they're there just to give interviews. And from nine in the morning until nine at night, they're lying in bed giving interviews. Yeah, and we kind of take the, you know, the iconography of what the bed-ins are. We kind of take them for granted now. And obviously there was there was a, a second bed-in later on in Montreal in, in May of the year. But um, yeah, as you say, it's only three to four months since the Two Virgins album cover came out. So yeah, we might think of the bed-ins as being this, you know, of them literally being in bed. But it's a totally reasonable assumption to say, if you get this blind invite that, well, why, you know, they might just be naked in bed, you know, yes, let's, why, let's, why? let's go see what's going on. Exactly. Why would they not be taking their clothes off? They've done it before. And, and uh, but it is kind of funny that it's obviously a classic bait and switch that they're saying to the. Yes. They, they obviously knew that this would, this whole potential titillation would just drive people in. And it's actually hilariously funny that it's so mundane what they're doing once the press get there. It is. I mean, I think I, you're right. There, at this at this point, they are manipulating the media. Yeah, and they are in control. You know, they've got the press there. Um, what are the press going to do? Are they going to just say, oh, he's got pajamas on. We Let's just leave. There's nothing here for us. You know, they are there. They've, they've got the attention. They are manipulating the me- media at this point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the notion that they might be doing some kind of public uh, lovemaking session isn't isn't totally um, unusual, but they are, as we said, kind of harnessing the moment to try and... Uh, to try and get people's attention. And here we are still talking about it 50 plus years later. So some of it must have worked. If it it wasn't a, you know, a COVID situation, we could go and broadcast from, 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 we could record an an episode in that uh, very room. We could put on our pajamas and (laughs) lie on the bed. That's not going to happen. And and, and That's like Eric and Ernie style. (laughs) Yeah, we obviously it's like Morgan and Wise. Um, But uh, so you can still go and say it's room 702 and I'm going to read you out the, uh, that this has now become advertising. It says City View, balcony, living area, John and Yoko memorabilia. What, what would that be? Like a cup that they yeah. drank out of or perhaps the signs. Um, you also get executive lounge, a lounge access and it said, treat yourself to a piece of history in the suite made famous by John. The suite features one kingside Hilton serenity bed and is directed, de- uh, decorated with only natural materials and unique John and Yoko memorabilia. I think I think we've got to go there. Okay, so we've got to go there and we've got to go to the, the, the other hotel out in the west of Ireland and all these John we go, and Yoko we could, each, we could each go to one hotel. <laughs> that, that's that's uh, spaced out enough. Um, so, yeah, so they, they, they basically give a week-long press conference. Do we have any, like this starts on Tuesday, the 25th of March when they're talking in their beds for a week. Do we have any notion of when specifically the idea happens. I'm, I'm assuming it kind of percolates in the days that they're in Paris, but it, it again, it's very spontaneous slash chaotic. Again, it, it chaotic is the word. It does seem to me that it must have been just during that period in Paris uh, that the wedding had been fairly low key. Yeah, uh, you, you know, you, you'd, there's photographs you see of them standing with the registrar, getting you know, holding the certificate. There isn't a media scrum happening there. Um, and again, if we go back to this idea that it, it, it's Paul and Linda's wedding, 
yeah. is the trigger for this series of events and that you see the media and they know the media will be fascinated by this. So it seems to spontaneously have have come about in, in that sort of week to 10 day. But what sort period. of happens around that Amsterdam bed in is we they, they kind of pivot over into this uh, chronicling of their lives, which they, they, they kind of become famous for in a way, because we start to get you know, essentially because the press are called, but we get a lot of coverage of the bed in and, and they do start to document their lives as a, a, almost as an art piece itself. This is it. This is this is the point at which um, John's life, his life with Yoko becomes, as you say, an art project. So, uh, you know, the writing becomes more about what they're doing, the side projects that they're doing, Two Virgins, Life with the Lions. All of these things are just, the, the artist is the art. That yes. seems to be the, the, the underlying message that Yoko brings to him. And, um, you know, he's, he's the product of uh, an art student, an art college uh, education. And there is this idea that, um, you know, his his talent is there. We've had the two books, but it's in in a sense it's being uh, constrained by the expectations of being Beetle John. Yeah, you know he's he's written these two books. That the, there are only two books. It doesn't go further than that. Yeah. Um. And, and but it's meeting Yoko that gives him the confidence, or she gives him the confidence to say, well, yeah, if you want to do this, you should do this. This is what you should do. Or let why not take all your clothes off on an album cover? Or mm. why not? document your own life and your art. That's what all great art is about the artist. Uh, that, that's Yeah, and, and you're right, because the books are kind of seen as, I don't use the word novelty, but as you say, they're, they're not used as a serious build. You know, there's, there's the books and then there's the, the National Theatre adaptation of In His Own Right, but they're kind of seen as a, uh, I think culturally as, oh, it's a bit of a parlour trick. Look, you know, he's written a book. He's the clever one. He's the literate, literate one, but he doesn't, necessarily leverage that into his art. It's really when Yoko comes along that he, as you say, follows this kind of art college thread. Yes. I mean, he he will say from time to time, you know, I, I saw myself, part of me is a songwriter, but the books and the writing is is a separate thing. And even you see in those interviews when he's talking about the books or talking about the writing, he kind of ducks his head down and he's got a little bit of a grin and he's, he's, clear, he's self-conscious about yeah. Uh, these sort of literary pretensions, I suppose, as he would say. But the say other three it. are kind of ribbing him in some of those interviews. And the other three are kind of ribbing like him. Yeah, tearing up very, the book and all that. Yeah, there's a very funny interview where George is kind of doing that with the book in the background. Yeah. And and so, so you know, it's that, it's that he wants to be taken seriously. He wants, he knows he has talent. He knows he is an artist, but he's self-conscious about it. And it's, it's you know, there's nothing less self-conscious than, standing in front of camera, taking all your clothes off and putting out an album cover. So it's Yoko is saying, could sort of liberates him from those constraints, yeah. those those conventional notions about, well, you're a singer yes. and you're a pop singer and yeah. stay, stay in your lane. You know, that's that's what's and required it, of you and that's what, that's what you must do. But it's also this notion of, you know, you can do them and, you know, the, the sky isn't going to fall. Like certainly, you know, you might upset some people, but that's just part yeah. of the, the process. You know, you can still keep on and try and, get to some truth. But yeah, you know, I think we need to look at that week in bed at the Amsterdam Hilton as, you know, where a couple of ideas take hold, the kind of the hyper documentation of John and Yoko's lives, the notion that they are the art themselves. And these are very much ideas that are at the core of this song, the ballad of John and Yoko, that this stuff is interesting. This stuff needs to be documented. This stuff is the art. And we don't know yes. exactly when he gets the idea to write the song, but it's certainly that cauldron of the bed-in would make sense that it comes out of activities like that because the bed-in gets documented in a couple of different ways, doesn't it? It does. Um, so again, it's mentioned in this song and then we, we, the, there is the wedding album uh, that, that, that comes out later in the year, which is a very lavish sort of box set that, yeah. um, you know, and you get photographs of the, the wedding cake and, and uh, drawings from the, there's a booklet and there's drawings and the, the second side of the album is really a reportage. You've got, little clips of interviews. You've got them singing little snippets of songs in bed. It's really, it's like an audio diary of, yep. of, of what, what has happens in, in, in that week. Um, and this is, this is where the John and Yoko brand, you know, if you think about John and Yoko, you tend to think of them either dressed the same 
in white. <laughs> yes. You know, they're, they're dressed all in white and, and they, they, he, the long hair, he's got the beard or else you picture them in their stripy flannel pajamas sitting in a hotel room with hairpiece and bedpiece written up behind them. Yeah. Uh, you know, which almost reminds me of the Dylan cue cards in. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, the, subterranean Homesick Blue. Yeah. Um, but this is where brand John and Yoko. Yeah. Come out. Comes about. And this is the point really at which they start calling themselves that, you know, that's all one word, John and Yoko. And you know, the, 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 the bedding is also documented in a book and in a film, isn't it? There's a, yes, there's a um, film called Honeymoon. Yes. Now, I, I have only seen little bits of this film, but this is a, uh, basically it was directed by a guy called Peter Gersons. Uh, and it's just a montage of, of, of uh, them wandering around uh, singing and, and, you know, you get to, get to see them sleeping in their bed, uh, reading the newspapers. It's again, it's like a, a, a diary. Um, there's also a fantastic photo book by Nico Coster, who was, yeah. a, he seems to have been a journalist or art dealer or moving in art circles. And he was invited by John to come in and record, uh, you know, what they were doing. And again, it's just a book of, of these very lavish photographs. Um, I do not have this book. It's about 70 pounds, a very nice looking thing, but I've never brought myself, uh, convinced myself I need uh, to spend 70 pounds on a book of um, photographs. But it's, it's, they get a very, uh, sort of cooperative press, I suppose, at this stage. You know, the, 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 again, there's a novelty and it's intriguing and it's funny. And even though the press must have felt slightly that they were being taken for a ride. Um, but John and Yoko are very clear, but they don't mind people laughing. They don't mind being clowns per se. No. And, and, and they say that, you know, it was, it, it's all done with humor. It's all done um, in a lighthearted way. And they are selling peace. You know, yeah. John talks about, well, this is a product. This is weird. You know, and he, uh, there's uh, footage in this film of him on the phone saying, you know, well, look, they, they uh, you just got to keep hammering home the message and people sell us everything. They sell us yeah. tin, tin goods, but they sell us war and they sell us armies and tanks and guns. And all of this is being played out against the background, obviously, of the Vietnam War that's, that's going on. He said, all of these things are on TV. It's propaganda. We've got to use that. We're advertising yep. Um I, I, And I suppose, you know, again, 50 years on, it all looks a bit, naive but it was a very radical mm. approach no, i think I, I you know i think 50 years on there's still uh you know we still see you know uh, people talk about in, in current times about you know it, it's a battle for people's attention you know and yeah. so you know you take someone like greta thunberg whether you you know you're on her side or not she's basically playing a game of getting people's attention and becoming a totem for you know provoking a conversation about those types of issues, whether it's in the press or around the dinner table or whatnot. And I think John and Yoko <clears throat> perhaps grasped that earlier than a lot of other people, you know. Um, and, yeah, and as we said, you know, it's something that still carries on today. You know, you think John and Yoko, you do think of the peace aspect of it. You think of the war is over if you wanted aspect of it. It's, it, it is branding and it is mass communication. It is. And this, this is where it starts. And Happy Christmas War is Over is really the end point Mm. And it's it's and in the middle, you know, you get give peace a chance, and you get so it's it's fascinating the kind of sloganeering yeah. that's going on with Happy Christmas War is over, give peace a chance, even even the phrase bed in, yeah, yeah, uh, you, you know, uh, hair piece, which is a kind <laughs> of pun, uh, you know, so everything is 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 being done with humor, yeah, and uh, again. 50 years of hindsight, I think people can be a bit po-faced about John Lennon and about Yoko in particular. And we, we've touched on this, you know, on the Yoko episode is she's quite willing to laugh at herself and she's quite happy that you laugh at her. Yeah. But as you, as you say, she's got your attention and the message is getting across. So next verse in the song, cause they do their bed in up until the 31st of March, 1969. Um, Made a lightning trip to Vienna, eating chocolate cake in a bag, 
Newspaper said she's gone to his head. They look just like two gurus in drag. Um, we don't know exactly if that's a verbatim quote from a newspaper, but it's um, the general tone of what they're talking about. Yes, that would be a that would be a great quote. You'd like to be the person <laughs> the person that came up with that. It, it it strikes me that it's much more likely to be John's phrase than um, than, than a journalist. Um, and but again, the rest of it is real, though. They do go to they, Vienna and they eat chocolate they, cake in a bag. Yeah, that's no. what you what's what you do if you go to Vienna. You, uh, yeah. yeah, if Paul marries um, Linda, that's the end result: is going to Vienna that, to eat chocolate cake it. in a bag. That's it. So this is this is the the. I, I remember the first time I heard this song, thinking, uh, "What do you mean the cake was in a bag?" The way you, you know, but they, yeah, from but a high I, end confectionery, a high end confectionery. That they they didn't occur to me that they were in the bag. <laughs> And then I began to think that's very impractical. Like there'd be crumbs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, that's just this, this has gone too far. I was twelve years old. I mean, okay. what was I? What was I gonna know about this? But um, so this is this is they again. They fly to Vienna. Uh, they stay uh, overnight. Uh, they have a press conference, and you can see little sketches of this press conference in in the stuff that comes with the wedding album. But and this is where they they sort of unveil this concept of bagism mm. um so they they just they hold a press conference from inside a bag and john retrospectively would say this was his favorite kind of aspect of what they were doing um on this whole whole trip and uh, we should say the chocolate cake uh it just you know it was a very particular chocolate cake um they stayed at the sasher hotel okay. and there's something called the sasher torta which is a very uh, well known rich chocolate cake dessert so hmm. again you know for our nothing is real European tour, we'll, we'll have to do that as well. Eating Sasha Torta in a bag, that doesn't scan quite uh, doesn't as scan well. Quite, doesn't scan quite so well. Um, but they're, they're there, there's two two things. They're, they're promoting, uh, there's a little film uh, being shown on Austrian TV of their sort of antics, uh, their honeymoon, but also they're there to promote the world premiere of one of their art project films, Rape. Mm. Uh, now we've mentioned this film before, but it's yeah. uh, it's basically a, a woman being followed by a camera, isn't that the yes, sort of around the street, streets of London, uh, through the park, into her apartment. Um, I, I'm I'm uh, this this film is on uh, YouTube. Mm. Um, I have not sat through the whole thing. It's extremely uncomfortable watching. Mm. It, it, it's supposed to be a sort of satirical commentary on press intrusion and the sort of thing I suppose uh, that that John and Yoko would experience or perhaps had been experiencing and again you've got this dichotomy coming through so on the one hand they're saying you know come and see us in bed uh, so yeah. that we can we can uh, you know tell you all about what we want to, to advertise and what we want to promote but on the other hand they're making a film like this, which is about press intrusion and about the need for privacy and and the fact that the press don't res- respect privacy. And I suppose this is still going on today where you've got sort of the media mm-hmm. or royalty or, or whoever it is, is pl- you, you're playing with fire, you know, um, and and this this does not sit comfortably with me, this this film, particularly because according to Yoko, this this is a done without consent. So the person in the movie doesn't the, know that the in person the movie. doesn't know. Now that uh, it seems that to me that seems, that can that yeah. cannot be right. It's one thing to kind of follow somebody around the streets of London, stick a camera in their face, but they actually follow her constantly across an entire day. You you'd go to a police station and call <laughs> yeah. the police. <laughs> you would, you yes, you, you'd, you'd you kind know. of um, yeah, you'd, you'd kind of put your foot down at some point, maybe. Uh, but that's probably the point. Getting back to bagism, I mean. Personally, bagism, I, you know, I think is a, you know, quite a forward thinking radical idea because, uh, you know, I think it's something that a lot of the, uh, you know, that that people could understand in a modern day era because, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of living in a time where people are addressing issues of, you know, race or gender or identity and all the rest. Yeah. And bagism is essentially uh, at its core is uh, uh, designed to be a deconstruction of identity and the filters of identity that cause people to have any form of prejudice. And so in, in modern parlance, I think that's something that people can understand. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, buying, I think, 
sometime in New York City and my father saying, you know, when I was 14 or 15 or something, my father saying this and going, oh, yes, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're in, in that bag. You know, yeah. like, what's that about? And, and he just it, he couldn't understand this at all and thought this was just a kind of a stunt. But that's what he remembered looking back kind of 15, 16 years on from the event. It was Oh, yes, I remember them appearing on TV in a bag. Well, as a kid, I would have thought they're in a bag. That's crazy. How do you drive a car? How do you do that? But that wasn't the point. Like, the, you know, once you kind of realize that it's metaphorical and they're not saying we all need to live in bags, they're just saying yeah. we need to have a we need to have our perceptions of these identities in bags so we can all peacefully coexist. Isn't that the point? It, it is. It is. <laughs> we, we get, no, no, you're absolutely right. And particularly in the, you know, as you say, in this, this day and age, it, it, it absolutely taps into that. And you, you think that uh, you would like to think that today, if that was happening or that was being presented as a concept mm. that, uh, as you say, people would, people would get it in, yeah. in those, in, in those days, 50 years ago, particularly with the press, they were just kind of going, what a bag well, they were just um, taking know, it they're, totally they're, literally it was just a yes, literal it's, it's, oh, they're in a bag it, i see yes absolutely and you know like the, there is a little clip of the press conference a uh, little extract on youtube and there's someone going are there holes in the bag and john going <laughs> well there's a hole to get in and out you know that, it's just it's it's they're it's it's, it's uh, they're con- being confronted with something that they just there's no point of no frame of reference for yes. this whatsoever. Yeah. And I think there's more of a frame of reference for it today. Now, the bag as an idea didn't just start in 69. Sure didn't. That was that was an idea that was hanging around before. It 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 is. Um and I mean it seems to me that this this is this is quintessentially Yoko. Yeah. Uh you know this this the you know she had been uh, doing this kind of uh, uh project but the first time is late 68 um there's there was a thing called the alchemical wedding which mm-hmm. was an underground artists get together uh the albert hall uh it was the arts lab in london put it on and again it's this idea of challenging audiences to be participants in the art rather than passive consumers so john and yoko climbed into a large white bag on stage, sat, uh, you sort of hunkered down, knee to knee, closed the bag and just sat there for 45 minutes um, and uh, did nothing. And that was their performance piece. And it was reported on the time. It said um, musicians played, poets ranted and John and Yoko crept into their white sheet-like bag on stage and stayed there out of sight for what seemed like ages. I watched a baby slowly crawl by and that was the bag happening. So that was, <laughs> you know, that was that was how it was being being presented at the time. But um, it, it's this idea uh, again, Yoko's idea: one sees rightly only with the heart; the essential is invisible to yep. the eyes. So, I, and, and it, you know, as you say, yeah, the the root of this idea probably comes from Yoko, and uh, as an artistic idea. You know, it, it it stands as one of Yoko, but you then introduce the most famous man in the world and stick yes. him in a bag. It becomes a totally different idea because it's saying, you know, that that fame is a is a is almost a prejudice. You know, so there's the concept of the bag itself, and then there's the concept of doing it with John Lennon, which is quite yes. like imagine the whole Beatles, four four Beatles in bags. It's quite wild. Well, Yes, because I mean, John, John, looking back on this, uh, uh, and again, 1970, where he's doing that. Uh, Jan Wenner thing. He said people would. He says Vienna was a very square uh, place, so it was a very strange uh, scene. And they're going, "Is it really you? Is that you? <laughs> Why? What? What are you doing?" And we're saying, you know, oh, this is just total communication. And they said, "Well, you know, can you sing? Uh, you know, what? What? Uh, because is it John and Yoko? Is it just two people?" That- well, that's the thing. If you'd seen, you know, the alchemical wedding, would you say, "Oh, I saw John Yoko." Yeah, John and Yoko live. You know, does it count? And that's that's the that's the thing that that's the whole point of the conceptual piece. I get you know. It I it, guess. it it is sort of you know brain meltingly odd. Yes. Once you start thinking about it, because it is about okay, this is just total communication because yeah. you can't can't see who I am. But the whole point of this communication depends on it being John and Yoko. They're on those. So on the one hand, they're saying. It, this is the most famous person in the world, and this is what's bringing people here, and this is what we're the message we're 
going to 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 sell you and then on the other hand they're saying but we're going to get inside a bag so you don't know whether it's us and you know, through all of this, you know, I think they were sincere, even if they were playing it occasionally for laughs or for fun or just to see what would happen. But Yoko in 2015 said, you know, John and I thought after the bed in, the war is going to end. How naive we were. But the thing is, things take time. It's going to happen. We're going to have a peaceful world, but it's going to take more time than we thought then. And as we said, you know, the point is that we are talking about it now, you know, so that that's what they they wanted it to, to be was just to get attention, you know, Um the last verse of the song starts with caught the early plane back to London. But I think we're going to talk about everything that happens in London in our next episode, because not only is there still some events to happen in the bad of John and Yoko, but you know, the song itself has to come into existence. And that's a whole, that's its own story, isn't it? It's a whole, uh, other yeah, bag. It's, it's a whole other bag. There you yeah. go. Hey, well done. Thank you very much. Um, so that's the events around the ballad of John and Yoko. And, you know, if you're you know, listening at home and you're writing all this down, all of this stuff is happening in about a two and a half week period. It's, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite wild and crazy, but when, when they catch the early plane back to London, that's where we're going to pick up the story the next time. We remain available in all the usual places, you know, our Twitter at Beatles Pod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, uh, our new website, uh, nothingisrealpod.com, which has uh, all sorts of links to past episodes, to extra bits and pieces and ways in which you can uh, support the podcast um, going forward. Uh, so check us all out, nothingisrealpod.com. Uh, but for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.